Hey, welcome to the Backyard Professor Live Sessions. I'm trying to get my hair combed real quick. I need a haircut so bad I can't see straight. Oh, that's the way it goes. Hey, I'm going to do something on the spur of the moment that I have not done, that I have been telling myself I ought to do, and I'm going to do more of this, I think, because when... I ceased being an apologist. I broadened my reading into a lot of literature that I was not pursuing as an apologist. And in the process of pursuing this literature, I began to gain a different perspective. I began to see things in a new light. And when I reread a lot of the old materials, which I used to read as an apologist with the intent on defending the truths of Mormonism, of showing how Mormonism was accurate in historical context, in religious context, with the philosophy, with the theology, etc. Now that I have been away from it for probably, what, 10 years or so, I have been rereading Hugh Nibley, and I have found that there is much in him that I still like. I'm not going to lie to you. When you can ignore the Mormon apologetic of Hugh Nibley and see his research from a historical point of view, then he really is still quite decent to read. The problem is 90% of his tripe is to defend Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, the Book of Abraham, the history of the church, history in ancient times as Mormonism defined history, etc. And that's where Nibley went completely off track, from my opinion. Now, it's a pretty daunting task for one so unlearned such as myself to take on one of the greatest minds in Mormon apologetics. Do I say I can refute everything Nibley ever wrote? No, of course not. That's not the point of tonight's exercise at all. What I'm going to do is something much more interesting so far as I'm concerned. It has been at least five years, and I think at a minimum, that I have read his very interesting article, Do Religion and History Conflict? Now, I used to love this article. I used this article as an apologist. And so I'm kind of coming at this. I, I remember some of it. There's other parts of it that I don't quite remember. I think I remember his main thrust, his main philosophical approach, not only to religion, but to history. And he did it in such characteristic Hugh Nibley style <laughs> that as an apologist, I loved it. Now I am suspecting that I'm going to see something in an entirely new light. Now, I have not pre-read this article to brush up on it. I'm hitting this fresh after at least five years and probably more realistically 
10 years because I've been so involved in so much else. And I thought it might be interesting to find some of the highlights. I'm not going to read the entire article, but I am going to respond with my thoughts now on this fascinating article. And I'm going to just read bits and pieces. I know this, you're taking things out of context. Yeah, well, so sue me. <laughs> I'm going to read portions you can see even back then that I underlined, I highlighted, I wrote notes, etc. So some of those areas where I've put stars on and where I've highlighted and where I've cross-referenced and stuff, I'm going to reread those out loud and just give you my op, off of the top head thinking of what I'm thinking about this. Okay? So I'm in the mood to do some history and study, especially after my rant on Sunday night, which apparently a lot of people liked. There were several people who didn't, and I, I get that. I understand that. Uh, I did get emotional because on social justice issues, as an apologist, I was constantly coming down on the wrong side. And and that's probably where the beginning of my anger stems when I get into social issues. I will try to watch that. My camera and my computer, I have found out, does try to muffle the sound, and it will also muffle the video. So uh, I've got to be careful about how enthusiastic I get as far as my voice length of noise. Hopefully, I will just say something intelligent, calm, cool, and collected. Let me jump on this Hugh Nibley article. Again, I'm doing this cold turkey right off. I have no idea what idea I'm going to come up with right now. Hey, welcome. Looks like there's a few of you showing up. Thank you for showing up. I'm doing a live surprise session again on Hugh Nibley and why I find him still fascinating but I no longer accept his views on so much stuff. So let me just say here, the question is, do religion and history conflict? Now, from Nibley's point of view, now, the thing that I remember about Hugh Nibley is he was very, very hard on the philosophers. And, and I mean the ancient ones as well as the modern ones. Philosophy to Hugh Nibley appeared to me to be in the enemy camp. It was usually commented in negative aspects because, being the true Mormon apologist, Nibley would use the philosophers as a contrast comparison to, guess who? The prophets. And so he constantly tried to minimize the philosophers and elevate the prophets. That was his main modus operandi. That was his purpose in life, to show that philosophy could not compete with the prophets and revelation. That's the essence of Hugh Nibley's apologetic, truly. So he starts out typical here. Do religion and history conflict? Only a philosopher would word a question so strangely. 
Now that finally strikes me as strange itself. Why does he think does religion and history conflict? Why does he think that's such a strange question? You see, immediately, he was so vastly well-read that he knew that there are conflicts. There's no, in many of his writings, in the process of defending the faith, in the process of correcting other Mormon scholars about their interpretations of history, archaeology, and the faith, Nibley knew that there are conflicts. So again, he's going to do the typical Mormon apologetic thing and minimize those conflicts. Hey, T.O., welcome, my friend from Hawaii. Aloha. Good to see you. Thank you for showing up. I'm doing a quick live session on Hugh Nibley. So if history and religion are different things, as the question implies, as the question implies, then isn't comparing them like comparing a rose and a submarine? Or might we not ask as well whether free trade and tap dancing conflict? See, this is my suspicion because he's bringing such obviously unrelated disparate subjects into comparison conflict with, with each other. And they, they bounce off each other in really wild ways because, of course, we do know, <laughs> boy, do we know, there are conflicts in religion and history. And they are separate, but it is usually the religions who want to hold history for their own authenticity. And this is what they argue about. For instance, Jesus. There you have it. History some say yes. Good Jesus? Some say yes. I choose my words deliberately because there are other options available now, regardless of whether the Orthodox religions like these options or not is irrelevant. These options exist and they are on the table that Jesus may not have existed. There are other options that Jesus was not good. For instance, where is he? I set some books aside because I suspected I was going to be able to use these books. And I am, and I can't. Oh, yeah, right here. Hector Avalos. The bad Jesus. Now, this is not for the faint of heart. This is not little table talk with Molly Mr. Manners here. No, this is 460 page pages of hitting Jesus right in the flipping teeth. 
ethically, religiously, doctrinally. Hector Avalos takes yet another look. So was Jesus good? Well, yes, if you interpret the New Testament a certain way. Was he bad? Oh, hell yes. You need to read Hector Avalos if you think I'm bluffing. So this is the theme that Nibley is kind of walking on eggshells. He's kind of tiptoeing somewhat. He's nervous about presenting this subject in order to try to make Mormonism appear in a good light. That is Nibley's objective. Not to discover whether history and religion conflict. It would have been vastly more realistic if Nibley would have just stood up and said yes to that question. Oh, of course they conflict, for Pete's sake. All you have to do is look at the thousands of different Christian denominations to see that they conflict. Or is it people's interpretations? And then you get into the, well, the interpretations are the history as well as the religion, <laughs> right? So this is not the area that Nibley wants to get into in this particular article, at least not according to my book. So again, I'm just starting fresh off Nibley. I have not pre-read this thing for 10 years. I'm just simply taking it off the top of my head. What are the thoughts that enter my mind now? Because as an apologist, I loved this article. I read it religiously every year, and I utilized it in my apologetics, in my overall philosophical approach. So that's been like five, 10 years ago since I've even read this. So I'm just kind of doing off the cuff. Now, what do I think? All things, he said, and this is on page, I, I apologize, this is a do history and religious con, religion conflicts. This is in the book Temple and Cosmos, and it was published, uh, Temple and Cosmos, it's the Collected Works of Hugh Nibley, Volume 12. Yes, I kept all my volumes of the Collected Works, and it was published in 1992, so this is old stuff, and yet... Yeah, we love to say, yeah, well, it's old, so it's outdated. I don't buy into that necessarily. Be careful with that. Uh, I mean, you know, Newton's outdated, but we still use him. He's four or 500 years old. So be careful with that approach. Uh, that can be used to skew and skewer our thinking also. So there's a fine line here that we've got to walk. So he says, all things, whether ideas or concrete objects, compete for our attention. Agreed. Yes. Whether ideas, uh, but that is plainly not the kind of conflict our questioner had in mind. Nor are we asked whether the laws of history and religion conflict, such laws as we have in history, fundamental principles, such as propounded by Thucydides or Buckle, or Spangler, are simply generalizations based on insight and analogy. There is nothing rigorous or binding about them. Now, <laughs> from my stance, 
I would say that's a pretty good description of Mormonism. <laughs> that's fascinating now. Now, there's no way, you know, when I was an apologist, you could have possibly convinced me that someday I was going to say what I just said about that particular sentence, right? So I have changed through time. Now, if you can't change through time based on evidence and a more complete analysis, and notice I do not say complete analysis. We're finite beings. We're never going to get totally complete. We're never going to grasp the entire whole. That is impossible because the whole as you understand in metaphysics, it will reveal as it conceals. We don't see the whole universe, let alone the whole earth, right? So we are limited. We have to take that into consideration, which Nibley does very well, if I remember correctly here. And he says, furthermore, your religion may conflict with my history and my religion with your history. But for that matter, your religion and mine probably conflict, as do your history and mine, to which I can only say a hearty amen. But I am now saying amen to the apologist, not the critics. And so I am now seeing from the other side, as it were, on to the Mormon view. So still, I think we can agree that the idea behind the question is clear. See, it's clear. So why earlier did he say the question is so strangely worded? Right? Here is what is clear. Does the story of man's life, as taken from the documents, that is, his history, resemble the life story of the race as taught by Revelation? In other words, in Holy Scriptures. Now, I used to love taking this barometer and measurement of truth and reality as an apologist, and today it's just so hard not to laugh. I, I can't help but wonder why that parameter is the baseline from which we make all other judgments. I no longer do. Now, I will hasten to clarify and to add that that does not mean I don't value the Scripture, because I do. But the amazing thing for me now that I'm no longer an apologist is this. The concept of the Scripture has broadened in my soul, as it were, to be vastly more inclusive of all of the other sacred traditions and their scriptures. Nibley, for the most part, as does 
all Western man, we maintain the context, the total fluidity and the full anchor for truth and reality to be in the Western scriptures. That is how we have taken just a part of the total truth of the life of man and all of their scriptures, we take our small Western part, we put it on a pedestal, and we judge all else from that sliver, and we couldn't be more incorrect, more incomplete, more silly. Now, especially concerning the fact, for it is a fact, that even the Book of Mormon indicates that many, many other peoples that are unknown to anybody else have kept their scriptures also. And I'm going to include the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, the Rig Veda, the Shinto text from Japan, all of the ancient scriptures East and West play into this. So for Nibley to ask, is his history, does this resemble the life story of the race as taught by Revelation in Holy Scriptures? Then he proceeds, the question is valid for all Christian sects and for non-Christian religions as well. The alternative to the general question is a chaos of special problems. He's got that right, I'm thinking, right now. I This is the first time I've read this in many years, and I think I would agree with that. But let's see what else he brings out. Every church comes before the world with certain basic historic propositions peculiar to itself. Again, if you're talking church as religion, then yeah. But I no longer equate just church with the religion, with with religion, with a religious philosophy. So see, you can see Nibley's Mormonism is poking through here, right? He says, every church may be judged by those propositions when they are clearly stated. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. But I would include that Rather than saying church, I would say every philosophy of man can be judged by the propositions made within that philosophy. Now, of course, I'm just now causing Hugh Nibley to roll over in his grave because he did not like the idea of philosophy even approaching in value the religion. He, he really attempted sincerely his entire life to lower the influence, to lower the prestige 
of philosophy. And so he would emphasize religion. And at this point in time, uh, I think his dichotomy between philosophy and religion is entirely Mormonized, in which case I would propose that it is skewed. It's kind of warped. It kind of boomerangs way out there and it doesn't come back direct. In fact, it doesn't come back at all. It's off the path. And the reason I say this is because of this new uh, author that I have uh, been told about by T.O. And T.O. is here tonight, T.O. So thank you for the shout out. And again, I, I almost bring this book up every single uh, video for very gosh darn good reason. Algis Uzdavenis. Now this is his main text, philosophy as the right of rebirth. And he is talking spiritual, literal rebirth birth. This isn't just a fancy wording to try to turn philosophy into religion. Philosophy began as religion, according to Uzdavanis's approach to ancient religious thinking, living, and interpreting. This is something Nibley would never have been able to do. He, he mentally could not have even fathomed that philosophy was originally and still is the main avenue to spiritual rebirth. That's, that's big. That's real big. According to Uzdavanis, Nibley could have never grasped that aspect. So he is talking church, and, and it's okay as far as it goes. I'm not criticizing him for saying what he said about churches having to uh, defend their propositions, of course, if they're stated clearly, because the grounding in especially our West, oh, most especially in the West, far more in the West than in the East, the grounding of the religion is within a, a context of history. And this is Nibley's bias. Now, it's actually all or a lot of our biases simply because of the Western culture we've been raised in. This is the cultural content. It's like a fish being in a fishbowl. It cannot grasp the fact that it's living in water. It doesn't realize that it's living in water and that there is something else, air besides water, to keep that fish alive. We, we don't recognize in the West so much because it's we're immersed in it. We're too close to it. So let's keep going on Nibley. Oh, hey, uh, let me say hi to everybody. T.O., thank you for showing up. Uh, Richard Petchak. And, uh, okay, it looks like you and T.O. are doing the talking. Excellent. Thank you for showing up. I, I appreciate you being here. Uh, let's see what you said. Nibley uh, said nobody could write a document like the Book of Mormon. He was the same type of idiot seven. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Nobody could, but Joseph Smith did. So he's wrong, right? <laughs> Funny how that works. Yeah, he was a crazy genius. In Nibley Zira, uh, T.O. is saying, in Nibley Zira, philosophy was more political philosophy, not metaphysical philosophy. That's an excellent point, T.O. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, very good. And, and so based also on that, and see, again, I would propose, don't hammer me on this. Uh, I would have to do a whole boatload of rereading of Nibley, and I'm not going to right now. Uh, I will through time, I suppose, maybe, but I'm on to so many other fantastic things uh, in my intellectual studies right now. But uh, the, the political philosophy would be a very good reason for Nibley to downplay philosophy because he was approaching it. He wasn't... He, I don't think he liked philosophy. I truly don't. Uh, I don't even think he was using the metaphysical philosophy as a basis for any kind of spirituality. The, the From Nibley's standpoint, the only proper avenue would have been through revelation from the prophets or to yourself. That to Nibley was the metaphysics of philosophy. If he held on to a metaphysics of philosophy, but you know well, Tio, that Usdavinus is not saying metaphysical philosophy is separate from political philosophy. Western man has caused that separation. It is philosophy. We are the ones who like to break things up in categories, groups, and keep breaking the whole apart into more and more and more parts, just like we do in our physics. We do this with metaphysics also. And so this is, again, I would propose loosely, gently, that this is a Western bias. And this is what Nibley was. So I agree with you. I see that. But I don't even think Nibley viewed philosophy metaphys. Oh, not metaphysically. <laughs> Heavens, no. No, I'm, I'm willing to be corrected. But oh, thank you, T.O. Yeah, you're agreeing. Okay. Yeah. And and here we go. Now, now you're bringing up another point. Hey, this is kind of fun. You're so right about the political and the metaphysical, T.O., but Nibley's mantic expresses metaphysical philosophy as opposed to man-made lawyerish philosophy. Yes, thank you for bringing that point up, too, also, T.O., and that is in his book, The uh, the Ancient State, which I did not... I did not pull down. I'm not quite sure where it is. Yes. And that was also one of my very favorite articles of Hugh Nibley in the good old apologetic days. I read that religiously and I utilized that. And since then, since I have finally begun to read the Greeks myself and to read the philosophers myself and to compare and contrast other authors such as Uzdavinus, such as Hector Avalos, and quite frankly, such as 
Mark Smith, the early history of God. I mean, there are just so much that it, it is such a much broader, uh, deeper context that I discovered that Nibley, again, notice how Nibley is categorizing mantic versus sophic. And of course, he takes the sophic and he turns that into sophistic, meaning philosophy. And, and, you know, you know the Mormon, you know, don't agree with men who mingle the philosophy of men with scripture. And yet that is all it's ever been. The entire script, the concept of scripture is a philosophy. <laughs> Talk about sweet irony, right? <laughs> you kind of go, wow, that is crazy beans, right? Yeah, true story. So yes, that, that's very excellent. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up too. So appreciate you contributing to the discussion. This is excellent. So anyway, now, the religions of the world, he said, and this is on page uh, 435 of, of the Nibley, volume 12, Temple and Cosmos, of the Nibley collection. Yes, I lost the cover years ago. Bummer. I don't, I don't have my books pristine, nice, and untouched sitting on the shelf so that they can look good. I believe in using my books and putting this information in here, and I don't care how I have to do it. If I have to scribble, write, draw, reference, etc., that's a proper use of the book. And see, that's my philosophy, right? So uh, let's go on. And, and he says, the religions of the world do take their stand on history to a far greater extent than is commonly realized. And uh, his generalization here is not totally accurate. Uh, Buddhism, and true, there's a historic Buddha. I, I get that and all, but it is, it is not hampered. It is not hamstrung by a specific historic interpretation any more than Chinese Taoism. And I know you have historical figures, Lao Tzu, etc. I, I get all Confucius. I get all that, yes. But I don't think he can generalize the religions of the world. From my stance, it would be more accurate for him to say the religions of the West. That is, That would be more, which is basically just essentially Christianity and Islam and Judaism. Now that would be more accurate. And then even with Judaism, you got to be careful with that too, because they really did a beautiful deep plunge into the metaphysics when they uh, began opening up the Kabbalistic attitudes with the, with the, uh, the Sefer Yetzirah, I believe was the earlier, earliest one. And then the Bahir, and then of course the Zohar, the big one, I mean, just, Gadfrey, it's dozens of volumes, but excuse me, that came that came further in uh, medieval history. Even that, uh, the Jews. Yeah, now here I'm going to split up the Jews. 
So I'm being kind of hypocritical here. I'm doing what I'm accusing Nibley of doing. Uh, the Jews actually did break uh, into Orthodox Jews and then the metaphysical Jews, the Zoharic interpreters, where they absolutely threw history out the window. The Zohar is... If you read the Zohar with the intent of trying to find the historical context, interpretation, validity, and reality of Judaism, you will fail because they didn't value history at all. Uh, I'm exaggerating. They put history on the lowest rung for, for uh, acquiring truth. Western religions, other than Judaism, really stick history up there. And of course, this is how Nibley's going to approach this, because Mormonism has taken the stance of literal historic, right? So that is what Nibley's going to defend, and he's going to try to separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. So anyway, so I think, I think his overgeneralization here is too much, is what I'm trying to get at. Now, uh, Christianity is by nature apocalyptic. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's one I have to chew on. I, I'm not convinced of that. I'm really not. Now, a definite concept of world history is implicit in its teachings. Its scriptures are at least half history. I don't even know if I agree with that. But see, the nice thing, you know, in a way, Nibley's nuance here, uh, he's got to be careful because of, he wasn't a fundamentalist. And yet so many times he comes across as being so fundamentalist in his view and interpretation but you can't just say it's all history. Uh, half history, that's that's okay. I can let that slide. And it rests its whole case in the last analysis on the fulfillment of prophecy. Okay, that's what he's trying to get to. Now, he has to elevate the fulfillment of prophecy because philosophers don't prophesy, right? And so they are lesser uh, value. They are a lesser cultural importance for man's true spiritual understanding of the cosmos because they don't prophesy. But guess who does? You see where he's careful? He's carefully grooming us in a specific direction that's going to end us being plopped right down into the heart of Salt Lake City. This is Nibley's intent with this article. And and he'll bring up all kinds of uh, fantastically interesting historical people, events, and so on and so forth to, to show off his erudite historical learning, which was really decent. And yet he mars the whole presentation with, with his Western bias, right? And of course, I use as a foil to this Western bias, now I... I've inherited it too, and I have it. And, you know, you almost just have to open up and acknowledge that. There's no way to get around that. But uh, the foil that I use for the Western bias is my very favorite philosopher at this point, Alan Watts. I find him deeply profound and interesting.
And he's been long gone. And he's still exceedingly relevant, which is really fun. So anyway, so we get to the fulfillment of prophecy. Here we go. We're being groomed down a specific kind of spiritual slash intellectual trail because ironically it is nibley's philosophy that it's based on prophecy that gives mormonism its historic validity but that i get again i say that itself is a particular philosophical outlook you can't get away from that at least it doesn't seem to be from from my point so and then Wow, no joke. Right after he says it, scriptures are at least half history, and it rests its whole case in the last analysis on the fulfillment of prophecy, my own church, by its very name, takes a definite historical stand. Yes, it does. Uh, these are the last days, not the end of the world. And they have been the last days for 2,000 years. See, again, uh, once I once I put the apologetic lapdog to rest, the last days concept opened up a new confluence in my mind that I just, I somewhere I know I got this from Hugh Nibley, but he squelched it but the mustard seed grew in me that it's been the last days for thousands of years. And therefore, it's not as meaningful. Right? So these are the last days, not the end of the world, but a time of continual crisis and mounting world conflict accompanying the wasting away of the nations. Well, that's not apocalyptic Mormonism. <laughs> Excuse me. That is completely historic. That, that's history over and over and over and over and over again. So again, what he appears to me to be doing here is he is putting the Mormon historical prophecy fulfillment philosophy of history via revelation from the heavens to the earth in beautiful Western religious tradition into the service of Mormonism. And then he's going to turn around, I think, if I remember right, and he's going to flip the equation. He's going to say, see, Mormonism has that, and that has been the life uh, philosophy of religion, if you will. He's not going to use the word philosophy. He won't like that. I can't remember how he put it, but, but then this shows that Mormonism is true. You can see the Mormon apologetic, and, and it's, it's rather sneaky. It is a rhetorical trick. Uh, and Nibley was also big on the on rhetoric, but he used it all the time, and he, and he did not like the ancient rhetoricians. And yet he was a modern Mormon rhetorician. It's fascinating. So, in civilized societies, it is customary 
for educated people to carry around in their heads two images of the past, present, and future world. The one religious, the other secular. All right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let, let's go with that. Let's go with that. Here we have two drawings of the same landscape. Are they identical? Is there a general resemblance between them? Or are they in hopeless conflict? See, uh, this is science versus religion. Except instead of science, it is history versus religion, which is the essence of do religion and history conflict. And the answer of that is, well, duh. Yeah, of course. Which one is true? And I believe he gets to that. And that's where he'll bring in the prophets and revelation as the only true resolve to the conflict. See, he's very Mormon here. <laughs> I believe that's what he's going to do. If I remember right, that is what he does. So. so if one has attended a liberal Sunday school, now remember, he wrote this, I, I mean, this was way back. Uh, in fact, I think it said, yeah, this was originally published in the Great Forum Series of Religion Number no. 5, Salt Lake City, 1955. No kidding. So amazingly, uh, almost 70 years ago, it still has some punch to it, doesn't it? It's got some peak. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's relevant. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? So... So, uh, in the liberal Sunday school, the two pictures will tend to coincide. Oh, so see, here we go. Liberals are the secularists. Notice his bias here. Isn't that interesting? I, I, I think it's interesting. I, I think it's amusing and yet actually serious. So, you got to put labels on opponents so that you can defeat them by your phony label. Right? Yeah. So, a liberal Sunday school, the two pictures will tend to coincide because they have conscientiously been made to coincide. Now, here is something. Conscientiously made to coincide. The liberal religion and the secular have deliberately been manipulated so that they coincide. I'm paraphrasing. Well, what would the flip side of that coin be off the top of my head? Just thinking out loud, I would say that the conservative Sunday school and the religious are deliberately made to coincide. But does that make it true, accurate history and religion? No, not any more than his parody of the liberal and the secular coinciding. Kind of interesting when you take that and flip it on its head, huh? Yeah, that's kind of fun stuff. So let, let's see what else he's, he's going to, let's see where the primrose path he's going to lead us down.
Well, the same is true if one has been trained in a fundamentalist school or college. Notice he says school or college, not church. It is apparent that both pictures are highly adjustable. Agreed. There is an orthodoxy and a hearsay in history as well as religion. Wait. Wait. Hearsay is a bias of someone who has greater power than someone else if they don't like what you say, teach, and think. That's just a label. That's not necessarily a reality made in heaven for us to determine what is orthodox and what is hearsay. On the other flip hand, after I got out of my apologetics, um, it really did dawn on me strongly over the course of a couple of years, and I'll never forget when this kite landed. It finally came down and clung to me, and it was a powerful moment. There is no time, there is no where or no when, when any kind, doesn't matter whether you go political, religious, history, philosophy, etc., there is no time when the orthodox view ever remained as being the only correct view through all time. Now you think about that. That is remarkable. When you really stop and recognize orthodoxy is irrelevant to truth and reality. Orthodoxy is just simply the strongest group who gets to make up the rules and the laws. That may have nothing to do with what actually is. That's amazing. That, that insight, I've never forgot that insight. That's quite interesting. So, they're adjustable. There is an orthodoxy and a hearsay in history. Both of these are just simply labels, truly. And as such, they have caused more hate, death, and crime than any other two labels in history, which is shocking when you really ponder that one. History is as much what a man believes as his religion is. There. There. Now, notice who he's saying this applies to. Okay? History is as much what who a man believes as his religion is. I would propose that that includes prophets, apostles, seers, revelators, and translators as well, including Buddhists and Taoists. 
and Shinto's. That's what I would propose. He's subtle here because he is gently prying apart inch at a time prophets who are not to be put in the same camp as regular men and the rest of the world because he's going to subtly and carefully elevate the prophets to be the higher spiritual reality, the higher religious slash historical truth tellers than anyone else in the world. This is what he's trying to accomplish in this article. For my opinion, he fails, right? So let, let me keep going here. Hi, Debbie Joe. Welcome. Hey, dork to dork. Welcome. Is he ranting tonight? I just joined. I always rant. I'm just ranting more calmly tonight. <laughs> oh, no. It's all good, Debbie Joe. You're not late. You can always rewatch the uh, video. It's all good. Uh, so here is what he says that really kills his case for elevating the prophets above all the rest of the common riffraff of philosophical slash religious slash historical humanity. Here's how he did it. He's not aware that he did it. This is my interpretation that I will share with you, but this is how he did it. So, History vindicates the proposition that God loves the Jews with equal force if you want it that way. History vindicates the proposition that God hates the Jews. Now, you can't say at uh, least not justifiably, I'll put it that way. Justifiably, you cannot say that the Mormon prophets are exemptions to this. History, depending on whichever documents you choose to include in your understanding, will definitely show God hates the Jews. And you can back that up with Scripture, truly. Well, on the same, on, on the other side, it'll also show how he loves them tremendously. And depending again, if you want it that way, and if you do want it that way, the implicit declaration is you will only pick and choose whatever information is available to you that supports that particular philosophical slash historical interpretation. In other words, history and religion are human biased constructs. That's what Nibley didn't tell us. Not in that way. 
not direct. And the prophets, apostles, seers, and revelators are not exempt from that. That's the issue. Yeah. So, this is very interesting. See, here he says, now on page 437, he says, the obvious intent of the question is to test religion's claims in the light of historical discovery. I would also add that the obvious intent of the question is to test religion's claims in the light of historical interpretation with the realization that no interpretation is final, and therefore that is one of the reasons why I've come to the conclusion that orthodoxy cannot have or be the last and final say-so any more than hearsay can. Because hearsay and heresy is again just another view incomplete, right? So, can religion face its own history without flinching? No, of course not. Of course not. History shows that. <laughs> That's wild, isn't it? Uh, he, wants, he wants to show that Mormonism has never flinched. <laughs> Which, which is downright hilarious, right? I mean, wow. <laughs> that is kooky stuff there. So, uh, T.O. is saying orthodoxy closes revelation, like Karamazov's Grand Inquisitor. Yeah, yeah, very good. There is no hint that history might flinch in the face of religion. See, Nibley's trying to turn something here. Let's analyze this. I smell a rat here. Okay, so, so let, let me back up a couple of sentences and reread this so that we can analyze this. Okay, the obvious intent of the question, do religion and history conflict, is to test religion's claims in the light of historical discovery. Of course. Or as the newspaper phrased the question, can religion face its own history without flinching, which I say, oh, hell no, not possible. There is no hint that history might flinch in the face of religion. That's just stupid. Of course, history is not going to flinch in the face of religion. History is about what happened. Religion is about what is believed, right? The question proposes a beauty contest in which one of the contestants has already been awarded the prize. Uh, no. No, that's not true. That, that's not true at all. Just because religion and history conflict doesn't mean one is right and one is wrong. That That's, of course, and maybe that was the intent of the question that he was supposed to address, and that's what he's, I'll bet that's what he's trying to refute, in which I, in which case, I would agree with him. Yeah, but no, I don't think, 
an award has already been given. History is not just one of, oh, yeah, he says history is above the storm. The only question is, can religion take it? Yeah. Now, yeah, uh, true in the past, there have been some historians, I would suspect, that have oh, had that uh, approach to it. You know, my history is the only truth and my history does not confirm your religion, etc. But no one's history as such ever actually confirms anyone else's religion. Um, some people draw the line early. Some people draw it late, later in life. Other people don't ever draw. You know, Isaac Asimov never joined religion. Houston Smith belonged to four of them, right? And Houston Smith was a spectacular and well worth reading scholar of religion and spirituality. Asimov was fantastic on the secular side of things, but he had his debates with, again, those interpreters of orthodoxy in Christianity, where he, quite frankly, did trounce them because, once again, the orthodoxy has never been right. So if there is, uh, I mean, if there is a political orthodoxy in existence in our land right now, or if there is a religious orthodoxy in our land right now, uh, you know damn good and well it doesn't have all the answers right. So there's no reason to worry about what it thinks until it changes its approach, which an orthodoxy won't do because they come from the stance that we are the only one true religion on the face of the earth. Does that sound familiar? Yes, it does. Right? So this is interesting. So, uh, let me look. Well, now, here we go. I like this on page 437. Yeah, he's going this direction that I thought he would. I'm probably remembering it from years ago, but yeah, it's kind of nice that I can uh, at least have a vague recollection. We cannot assume at the outset that either picture is perfect. There, there you go. Now, now here's Nibley being realistic. Right. History or religion, neither one of them is perfect. Absolutely. Primony, yes. We have no right to treat history as the true and accurate image of things. Absolutely. He is strictly correct here. Yes, I like that very much. Like science and religion, history must argue its case on evidence. All right. Um, superficially, without giving it several weeks of thought, I, I will somewhat agree pleasantly. Uh, you guys look like you're starting to talk again. Um, Debbie Joe, excellent point. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. If our perspectives don't change, we aren't growing. Right. I, I, I agree. Hey, Gail Capson, welcome. Hey, Lorena Corn, uh, Cornella, welcome. No, no, don't be sorry. You're late. It's all good. Hey, Suze. Oh, thank you very kindly. I love that you come to my show, too. So I'm trying to give you some more information on a philosophical slash religious slash intellectual slash historical uh, 
discussion based on Hugh Nibley's article, Do Religion and History Conflict? Here is the issue that bites Nibley on his behind as well as it does Mormonism, but they don't have to feel bad because this issue bites every single human discipline, secular or sacred. Nibley didn't put it this way, but let me read this idea. because This is my uh, interpretation of this. See, this body. Now, I'm going to do it this way. This body, me and you, my audience, this group. The group Nibley is talking to in front of is the one he's talking about. So he says, we are like a jury. And we are. True. Every member must do his own thinking and make up his own mind. That is the beauty of these meetings, we are told. But only after viewing all the evidence. Well, that's simply a staggering assignment, but he is correct. But that's not what Mormonism has ever done. That's what Nibley won't tell us. We can't. And yet, amazingly enough, Mormonism has never done that, yet even with their higher-level knowledge based from a heavenly revelation, they still don't have the final word, and they have been demonstrably shown to be wrong and incorrect, most especially on social issues. <laughs> Man, they are wildly weird with their own biases, right? So this is fascinating. No one can evade it and still form an intelligent opinion. Not true. We all are justified in having an opinion. What we're not justified in doing is maintaining that opinion in the light of new evidence, which very well could contradict that opinion. Now, new evidence could also confirm that opinion, but you have no right to just select the evidence that you like. You have no justification in just accepting the evidence that confirms your belief. And yet, that's the essence of all organized religions. Yeah. That's the downside of all of this because it can be shown. Um, let, let me, um, yeah, let me show you real quick. Uh, this text, the historicity of the patriarchal narratives, absolutely wipes out Abraham as a historic gentleman. He didn't exist. That is just a concocted story in the Old Testament, and the evidence is really pretty strong. Now, Nibley, of course, did not refute this. I'm not sure if he ever referenced it. He could have. I, I'm not going to say he didn't, but he damn sure never refuted it. He more or less ignored it. Now, I do know for a fact 
that Nibley did use John Van Cedars, Abraham in History and Tradition. But what he did is he just used one or two sentences from his 330-page text and analysis showing that historically and linguistically and contextually within narrative analysis, Abraham was not an actual flesh and blood human being. Uh, again, a story. So all evidence. Now, all of the materials that Van Cedars and all of the materials that Thomas L. Thompson analyzed and translated and interpreted was not utilized by Hugh Nibley. And yet he would come to the conclusion at the end of so many of his firesides with, well, I may be ignorant, but I'm not lost. I know the gospel is true. So he short circuits and undercuts his own philosophy here. And it is a philosophy if you're going to gain a testimony of religious truth, it is a philosophy that you have to have the full context and utilize all the evidence. Yet Nibley didn't, but he sure didn't stop from bearing his testimony. That short circuits the whole enterprise. That's cheating, is what I'm saying. And I do believe Nibley knew that. This is where he became, this is where he utilized faith-promoting apologetics rather than historical evidences. Because the historical evidences definitely went against Abraham. But Nibley never went that route. He used faith to pull him away from the non-historic Abraham. Kind of interesting. The bias, see? The bi now, we all have that bias. Um, that's just the way it is. So, kind of very interesting. Okay, so, uh, let me let me skip diddy-doo-dah. Um, okay, now, T.E. Pete, and, and this, is, this is pretty good, too, page 438, and, I mean, more or less, we're all guilty of this in one way or another. Uh, it looks like uh, there's a few more of you showing. Oh, Lashram32, hi, how you doing? Good to see you, good to see you. Obadiah Bumbley, good to see you again. Uh, and so, uh, T.E. Pete, he quotes T.E. Pete. Now, th this, is, this is decent. This is pretty good. As long as our ignorance is so great, our attitude toward criticisms of these ancient literatures must be one of extreme humility. And, and I would agree. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we all have underestimated the extent of the power of the ancient materials. Uh, trick is you got to read a lot of them to see that for real. Um, so uh, let's see. We can't talk about history intelligently and leave all that stuff out, but that is precisely what we do. He's got a point there. Yeah. Uh, we, are, we are much more apt to 
generalize rather than dig in and read two or three hundred of these ancient texts. We would rather generalize about the religious predilections, and Nibley was guilty of that as well as all of us. Everyone is, so I'm not trying to cast a stone here. I'm just saying the humility, the ignorance cannot be overcome by pretending to get a testimony of the truthfulness of your limited self-selected evidence as truth of the church. But that is the essence of Mormonism. See, again, it's a bad word, but cheating. At this stage, I can't help but see that as cheating. I'll be happy to learn and be demonstrated to be false, but good luck. You're going to need it because that's cheating <laughs> from my point of view at this point. So is there not some way of obtaining a reliable impression of the past or of building a plausible structure of history without having to examine all the evidence you notice where he's trying to lead this. Yes, there is a way. It's called testimony and revelation from the prophets. You see that, though? But, but you notice how he is carefully grooming us into that selective conclusion, which he began with, but he never told us, right? And so he's picking and choosing his philosophical points against philosophers and histories and, and so on and so forth in order to elevate the prophets of Mormonism. That was That's the Nibley method, right? That's the apologetic method. And 10 years out of apologetics, I, I am here to say that that just falls flat. That does not work. It's that simple. So, Anyway, the problem that concerns our historians today is that of reducing the book of evidence without reducing its value. And that is actually true. We're in the same boat with mathematics. We're in the same boat with science. We are definitely in the same boat with quantum physics, and so on and so forth. So, again, our finiteness comes to the front. And that is something we cannot escape at this level of existence. And, and I think both. Uh, I, I actually think the realistic uh, philosophical religious view from both the East and the West do end up on that. <laughs> Simply because that is what's real. <laughs> they, they can't fake that. So some try, but they can't do it. Some information is more valuable than other information. Very true. Yes. Yep, yep. So, and then he goes on and uh, and he really ridicules the academic. And if he was alive today, he'd be completely mortified and horrified by the sham that has become our college education situation in our nation. And uh, I have some very good college professor friends who will back me up on that. And that is most unfortunate. But, yeah, that's too bad. Anyway, yeah, the modern college teaches us, if nothing else, to accept history on authority. 
Now, come on, Hugh. <laughs> he, he is correct. Uh, it has devolved down to authority. But I, come on, the same thing exactly with Mormonism, right? Yeah. Your eternal blessings is threatened by Mormonism. That's far more than what the colleges do, right? If you don't accept their authority. So, I mean, you know, he might even, he might even be, uh, uh, he might even say that about the religion. Let me look real quick. No, no, he doesn't there, but um, he says the, and, and again, this is so typical nibbly, page 442 now in the Temple and Cosmos. He says, uh, to handle problems requiring data beyond the capacity of students and educators impatient to shine, the ancient sophists devised certain very effective discussion techniques. Uh, in these, the most important skill was that of presenting evidence by implication or inference only, as if that's not what he's been doing here, right? So again, he he uh, he really did not like the ancient rhetors because they were philosophers. But what he doesn't uh, bring forward is the philosophers were the basis of the spirituality of the ancient cultures. And that's what makes Uzdavanis' material so very valuable. Invaluable. I love his stuff for that reason. So, you know, they want to give you the stock answers. It's the answer book. The art of implying the possession of certain knowledge without actually claiming it has become one of the great humanistic skills of our times. And I would say, tusk, tusk, Hugh, it's also one of the greatest religious Mormon skills of our times also. You see, his own religion, you see, he's, he's, uh, he's trying to put a cap on the validity and authority of history because, of course, it always has to be interpreted and we have to generalize and therefore we're never quite right. And yet we want to be because we crave certainty and therefore we begin to use our authority to convince people that we have the right view, etc. And so we begin generalizing and throwing out implications that is for all the world the perfect description of Mormon revelation. They imply that they they see Jesus and talk to him on a daily basis. They imply that they have higher knowledge of the cosmos, truth, reality, history, philosophy, and every other subject. They constantly are doing this, and yet Nibley is throwing that accusation at only one side the historians. And what he's going to come to is, therefore, any historians who are criticizing Mormonism on that basis can't be correct. Well, neither can any Mormon criticizing the rest of the world on that basis be correct. And that is what Hugh Nibley did not tell us. So, so this is this is fun stuff. Uh, it's I, I'm not gonna. It's pretty long. I'm not gonna go. 
I, I'm not going to go through it all. Yeah, it, it's it's. I just wanted to give a basic. I, I've gone an hour twenty minutes already. Maybe I'll pick this up and do a part two later. But uh, I I was just kind of in the mood to, you know, my history conflicts with Nibley's history. My religion conflicts with Nibley's religion. But let's be on the level perfectly frank for a moment. Everyone's history conflicts with everyone else's history, as does everyone's religion conflict with everyone else's religion. Uh, everyone's mythology conflicts with everyone else's mythology. And it, it's like one of my absolute most favorite texts, the Woman's Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets by Barbara Walker. Uh, if you don't have this book, you're losing out. This is simply overwhelming. It's huge. I mean, gigantic. It is well over a thousand pages. In fact, it's 1,100 pages thick. And she covers every cotton-picking subject under the sun. Well, her knowledge of ancient history and ancient spirituality and mythology is nowhere near the same as the orthodox patriarchal knowledge quote, knowledge, which in essence she demonstrates with astonishing evidence that all of the patriarchal religions has either tried to destroy, throw out, forget, or denigrate. She shows how their history is a very biased history and her history tries to bring about a more complete full balance. Nibley didn't do that. So that means her religion conflicts with Nibley's, of course. Another example, James D.G. Dunn, Unity and Diversity in the New Testament. This text shook me. Uh, it has been years since I've read this. I've really got to get back on it. Fantastic book where Dunn is a Christian scholar. Uh, fabulous New Testament scholar and early Christian historian. His interpretation of the scripture in the New Testament is definitely never going to match Hugh Nibley's Mormon interpretation or any of the other prophets. But just because it doesn't match doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means his interpretation is different than Nibley's. Once I recognized that Nibley was not the final say-so, and I know we're talking extreme naivete on my part, because that was basically my thrust as an apologist. Once I recognized he wasn't the final authority, then everything else fell into place. Again, David Feidler, another fantastic early Christian scholar. Jesus Christ, Son of God, S-U-N of God. Ancient cosmology and early Christian symbolism. Well, his interpretation of symbolism and the religious meanings 
in Jesus, the religious meanings with the apostles in the sacred texts in the Greek philosophers is nothing like what Hugh Nibley ever arrived at, and yet it is deeply spiritually profound material. So Nibley in saying, yeah, we have to look at all the evidence, of course he couldn't. But yet he turned around and he said, well, I testify that the Mormon interpretation of the New Testament and of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is true. I have that by the Holy Ghost. Those are word games because this kind of material is every bit as spiritually profound. David Feidler, um, James D.G. Dunn, Barbara Walker. Another one who was deeply profound and affected me, the ever-intelligent, and I've shown this several times, William G. Dever, Beyond the Texts, Biblical Archaeology and the Search for Ancient Israel. Well, ancient Israel, as understood by legitimate biblical archaeology, as properly defined now, not as proving biblical historicity. That is not what the discipline is doing. Nibley thought it was. And of course, he was, he was embedded within the cultural context of his day. I get that. He was quoting the legitimate scholarship with their illegitimate bias because he had no other choice. I get that. But now that we've overcome the bias with further light and knowledge that Father promised through William G. Dever, we recognize that the actual archaeological materials and the linguistic material remains from antiquity demonstrate that the entire Old Testament picture of ancient Israel is a story, not history, just story from a much later point of view. And so again, do history and religion conflict? Hell yes, of course. William G. Dever could never have seen eye to eye with Hugh Nibley and vice versa. So there's there's a couple of uh, brief examples. And then, of course, P.R.S. Murray, A Century of Biblical Archaeology, where he goes through and he, he, he discourses starting with the, the late 1800s, uh, and going through many of the very, very world-famous biblical archaeological materials and discoveries demonstrates how one by one by one, all of those archaeological and historical evidences now, actual evidences now, in favor of the way the Bible gave us the information, every single one of those evidences have fallen by the wayside with new, better scientific techniques of reading the data, of comparing and translating texts, utilizing the cultural milieu of the ancient world demonstrates the Western bias in even using biblical archaeology to confirm anything in the Bible, which it doesn't, as the Bible has presented the information.
And now that's that's shocking. That's positively amazing. And then Dever, oh he oh, and then once again, I will share this information too with Raphael Patai, the Jewish scholar, the Hebrew goddess. And I've got the third edition. And Raphael Patai has demonstrated how the ancient symbolism now with when we bring in the Jewish materials that have been ignored or downplayed, not only by the Christians, but by some of the Orthodox Jews and the Orthodox Judaism itself, we discover that there was a heavenly goddess in ancient Israelite religion. Well, and he brings forth evidence that even Nibley never bothered with, or some of the, uh, James D.G. Dunn wouldn't like this at all, etc. But it's not a matter of liking or disliking. The question is, what about the evidence and the interpretation? Which is most valid point of view? That gets sticky, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is why. And then again, one of my brand new, very favorite authors, Carl Ruck, The Hidden World of Antiquity Based Upon Entheogenic Practices, Utilizing Hallucinogenic Mushrooms to Give Us Our Religious Spirituality. And it's powerful because the symbolisms of their revelations are hidden in the symbolisms of fairy tales, European fairy tales, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Little Red Riding Hood, Jack and the Beanstalk, etc., no kidding. Well, this evidence isn't anything that Nibley analyzed or assessed, right? And then his other one is the Apples of Apollo, the Pagan and Christian Mysteries of the Eucharist, which is simply one of the most mind-boggling books I've ever read. Amazing scholarship. And then finally, one of my very favorites, and I can't remember where I put the... Uh, book cover, is Brian Murescu, The Immortality Key, where he describes the religion that has no name dating back to hoary antiquity, Gobekli Tepe, 11,000 B.C., and all the way up into history through the Indo-European migrations and their split about 6,000 BC, the one branch going off into the Vedic era uh, or area, India, uh, and the East, and the other one breaking off and becoming our Greek branch of civilization, the Mycenaeans and the Greeks and the Romans later, etc. So these kinds of histories are just, and, and all the evidences are not, oh, and then this one by Dennis R. MacDonald. Oh my gosh. What a fantastic interpretation based on narrative analysis. The comparisons of literatures, of the Greek tragedies, the Dionysian Greek tragedies with the Gospel of John, 
Nibley wouldn't have known anything like this. And yet, this has exquisite, valid, powerful points that Nibley wouldn't possibly agree with. But that's not the issue. The issue is never, do I agree or disagree? The issue is, how valid is the evidence? This is hot stuff. So again, the flux, the movement, I'll say, of history and the interpretation of endowing religion with, with sacred reality, what is that based on? Belief, history, philosophy, uh, interpretation. Well, who gets to have the last word? Prophets, revelation. Who actually gets to have the last word? No one does yet. This is what is so amazing about this entire whole topic. I, I, I can't help but... Uh, really, really like this topic for that reason. And then again, Method Infinite, the, the brand new book on Freemasonry and Mormonism. None of this historical evidence has ever been examined in the full light of day, amassing it together to see the exquisite inclusion of Freemasonry in Mormonism in Joseph Smith's entire lifetime, not just in his later years. Well, nobody looked at it this way until just recently. So again, we, as they teach us in the martial arts, we have to be like the willow tree, be flexible and bend with the wind, or you break. Orthodoxy is stiff like an oak. And if a strong enough wind comes, breaks it right over. Orthodoxy never had it right. And again, once again, John Brooke, the refiner's fire. The hermetic elements within early America, uh, antebellum America, 1800s, and Joseph Smith's life and the context of the medieval uh, Egyptian hermetic interpretations and doctrines, which some Mormons will carefully pick and choose like I did when I was an apologist. They will pick and choose certain parallels. You know, man can become gods and so on and so forth, imagining that this confirms only Mormonism because only Mormonism is the only one true religion and true faith. And the Holy Ghost will testify to you of that. And yet through the gross misuse of the historical sources, is what they base their testimonies on from the Holy Ghost? Highly questionable. I, I just yeah, chalk it up to serious heartfelt doubt from me now. Uh, because the methodology, which does matter, the methodology is highly suspect. Seriously questionable, right? And then... Again, in light of the shift of philosophical thinking about how do we describe, how do we tell, 
how do we write Mormon history? We have Joseph Smith, Rough Stone Rolling, by Bushman, Richard Bushman. This book was so inclusive of so much more of the materials than the prophets and apostles ever wanted to be let out that there were many people online on the internet who was screaming that this was an anti-Mormon book. That's how generalized, I'll say. That's how the uh, particular Mormon bias, how strong it was in presenting its own history in only a purely faith-promoting angle. That is how lopsided, I'll say, the Mormon history had become, so that when the much more full version came through, and of course, Bushman is giving his historical interpretation. I mean, there's stuff in here that even I don't quite interpret that way. I've got some other sources that he didn't utilize that would throw a different light on one of his interpretations, for instance, and that's all good. But again, do we have the final answers? Of course not. Do we have the final interpretations and finally have the truth as taught by the Holy Ghost? No, of course not. And yet that's what Mormonism says a proper a proper study of history is going to lead you to. Again, that philosophy is seriously faulty from my perspective. I no longer buy that, right? And of course, again, the world-famous early Mormonism in the Magic Worldview by D. Michael Quinn. You know, we have Nibley back in 55 saying, look, we have to explore absolutely all the evidence. It is a staggering assignment. D. Michael Quinn was up to it, but he completely transformed not only Mormon testimony of Joseph Smith, but of every single religious significant event in Joseph Smith's life because the context had been left out. It had been invented by Orthodox Mormonism, <laughs> which is crazy because Orthodox Mormonism was wrong. D. Michael Quinn had a terrific, it is a huge, now this is the second edition, 630 pages. The first edition, I think, was like 200, 300, almost 300. Anyway, again, um, Evidence, interpretation, selection, all of that Nibley addresses in his article. Do history and religion conflict? The fact is, due to the selecting, there is going to be conflict of, of not only interpretation, but of testimony, right? Who better to show, who, who better to end uh, this Mormonism live right now, uh, this Backyard Professor live, who better to end with than Leonard Arrington, the official church historian in the 1970s. Let me share just a couple of thoughts. 
This is the fantastic biography by Gregory Prince of Leonard Arrington, one of the truly great historians. Elder Benson, apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, the man who had special revelatory knowledge and understanding so that everyone should see it from his point of view. Harrington mentioned that Benson would not stand for, quote, real history, and that Leonard and his co-workers were powerless in the face of his opposition. That was spot on. Ezra Taft Benson, man of truth, did not want to give us the real history. He wanted to carefully select the best parts according to his view in order to show Joseph Smith was a true prophet. The priesthood is still here on the earth. We have prophets today. There's 14 fundamentals that you have to follow the living prophet for in order for you to get to heaven properly. On and on and on with what I can only term is pure, unadulterated, orthodox bullshit. And then again, one month later, in spite of McConkie's and Hunter's stated aversion to correlation, Olson again raised the issue with Leonard. Earl said something about clearing things through correlation. I said that would be the worst thing that could happen. How can they possibly judge us on what is good history and what is bad history? And that hasn't changed at all since the 1970s. And yet, guess what One Orthodox correlation, of course. You see the issue. It's plain as day. And finally, Durham's message sent shockwaves to the historical division. The first talk that he gave to us was, you have to be careful. This was Durham telling the church historian's office. You have to be careful. You have to write your history in the image of Brother Benson. Orthodox stupidity. What Benson thought, because he was a leader, must be true because... He's a leader. You see, that's the kind of stuff that Nibley never talked about. And so we can see, we can experience, actually, we can witness for ourselves the extreme apologetic uh, warpage, I'll put it that way, that that was that was. Uh, emphasized in order to, and, and today, what do they say? Well, you have to stay on the covenant path. You know, they have all these little stupid, cheap pop psychological comments and statements that just don't mean diddly. And yet it strikes fear in the hearts of so many of the Mormon church's members because they really believe that view. And it's not based on 
all the evidence. It's based on very precious little evidence. It's based on what? Authority. And history cannot possibly be based on authority any more than science can. Authority does nothing to establish reality. Only evidence can do that. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's my take on, on one of the more interesting uh, Hugh Nibley articles that, that I really, really enjoyed as an apologist uh, through the years. And now when I read him with a more mature, nuanced, better read background understanding I just simply don't find him all that convincing anymore. And, and I'm not saying that to denigrate Hugh Nibley. I'm saying that as we grow, as we learn, and, you know, it's one of the favorite, you know, guru, maybe new age views, as we expand, you know, go to the light, <laughs> Go toward the light. <laughs> As we journey intellectually, spiritually, physically, psychologically, there's going to be warps, turns, twists, the whole kip and caboodle, man. We're going to experience about hills and valleys, right? Farm fields and forests, mountains and oceans, etc. In our psychological landscape, not just our physical, but our psychological and our spiritual, well, there is no end to worry about for now. It is the journey. I, I entirely agree with the Eastern view here. Uh, and it has really opened me for a much more full, enjoyable life. This view that quit, see, again, the, based on the Orthodox interpretation of the religion. Now I'm talking about Mormonism. Based on the Orthodox interpretation of the religion, uh, they have given us a psychological warpage that it is the end that we should focus on. Now, and Alan Watts has some wonderful analogies. He said, if it wasn't about the journey, if it really was, if the end is what was important in music, then the best composer would be the one that got there the fastest. You wouldn't even hear the symphony. All you'd hear is the grand crescendo. And that's it. Now you can go home. <laughs> that's quite an analogy. Because you see, music is not about reaching a finishing point. It's not about how fast you can get there. It's about enjoying the music. There's no purpose to it. It doesn't have a goal. What do you do with music? You play it. You don't work it. You play it. 
when you're out on the dance floor, is there a specific spot on the floor that you have to end up at? Are you going to aim at that particular spot while you're dancing and only focus on that spot? And, oh, my gosh, I've, I've got to get there. If, if, if we don't get there, then the whole dance is ruined. Of course not. Dancing is not about achieving any kind of a goal. It is simply to play. It is to dance. That's the whole theme. That's the whole point. There's no purpose. It's not that it has a meaning in order for it to exist. It's fun. And you do it because you're happy. And you don't care where you're whirling and going to or whatever. It's in the movement with your partner that the dance exists, not as a purpose, but as just pure joy. That's the idea of life. Mormonism has twisted, um, that sounds kind of rough, but Mormonism has twisted the psychology of the individual so that if you are not totally focusing. Jesus is coming. Oh my gosh, he's coming very soon. The second coming is close. Oh, brethren and sisters, the second coming is close. Are you prepared? Are you worthy? Oh my gosh. Oh my you don't you don't want to you don't want to be unworthy when Jesus gets here. Oh my gosh, you've got to be worthy. Here here it comes. The end is coming. The end is coming. That's what we have to focus on. You're full of guilt. You're full of fear, you're full of shame, because of course you're always falling short, you're always sinning, and it's a positively horrible experience because Mormonism has lost the vision. It's the journey. The entire universe, go out in the dark sky and look up. I mean, that is a cosmological fireworks, and it's absolutely magnificent. But the point of doing that is not to memorize every name and position of every light up there. Don't be silly. The point is, go outside, lay on your back, and enjoy yourself with our home. That's the point. Not how many stars did you count going? Oh man, you fell short 35. Oh, you're in so much trouble with the bishop. Oh man, maybe you better lie about that and therefore be guilty and, and say you got them all counted. I mean, if you were to focus on stupid, dumbass stuff like that, your life would suck. That's why so many Mormons lives indeed do suck, unfortunately. The great news is that it doesn't have to be that way. Not even maybe. So that's my, that, that's my point in trying to read one of the great Mormon apologists. He was a great Mormon 
apologist, but that doesn't mean he was right. In fact, that probably pretty much guarantees he wasn't, which is really ironic, isn't it? Yeah. As a former apologist, I can now see that point pretty cotton picking clear. So anyway, that's it. Uh, I am approaching two hours, you guys. Thank you so much for show. Oh, look at all those likes. Thank you for giving me a few likes. I appreciate all your support and love and, and all that jazz. So uh, I'm going to call it good. I hope you guys had fun tonight. I know it was a spur of the moment thing. You never know. I might do this again on, on who knows when. Uh, I will be back on Sunday morning for the Sunday schools, 10 a.m. Mountain Time in the United States, and Sunday evening, 6 p.m. for the fireside. You don't want to miss those. Uh, you never know. I might rant and rave again. <laughs> All right, you guys. Hey, I love y'all. I appreciate you. Be good. Do well. Have fun. Be happy. Get some sleep if it's nighttime. And if it's daytime, enjoy your day. And I will catch you next time on the Backyard Professor Live. Oh, thank you for all the love in the hearts. Hey, Crystal Christensen. Good to see you. I don't know if I've ever seen you here before. Thank you for all the heart. Oh, and the thumbs up, Loretta. Oh, you guys are awesome. Lashroom. Oh, you guys. Love you too, Debbie Joe. Suze, you're very welcome. Ah, oh, you can't help it. Th this argument. Absolutely, T.O. You're very welcome, my good friend. Thank you. All right. All right. I have got to go. I will be back. I promise. Thank you.